Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major audio podcasters, and Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Richard Booth. We're continuing our series on the OKC bombing. Uh, just like last episode, uh, this is another. That video was from Jinx at Crack Connoisseur on Twitter. Uh, he drops a lot of edits like this. Uh, he did two different edits for the uh, Yiki one. Uh, that one has a larger story behind it, uh, you know, with the, the some of the stuff interspliced, which goes even creepier down the wormhole, uh, which goes in a lot of the um, information warfare or whatever you, you want to call it that the uh, Fed boys do out in the open. That was actually from a commercial from some uh, Fed type thing. I forget all the details, but uh, I mean, if anyone wants to know, uh, hit me up and I can tell you more and look into it. But uh, I also want to say thanks to Junkie Jeff for finding these for me uh, when I got nuked from Twitter before. And then uh, it's saying these over to me because I think uh, Jinx got nicked around, uh, around the same time. So he managed to snag those videos beforehand. But uh, either way, uh, for today, I, I normally do the whole paywall thing where I'll drop it a week later. I'm not doing it this time around. So this one you guys get get you know all free and clear or whatever. Um, so, uh, you won't have that period of time. So you can watch an hour, you can watch it later. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's not going to be hidden behind the paywall at all. The reason why is for scheduling reasons, because we're doing the next episode Tuesday and I didn't want to like cause problems for people who watch the public live stream usually. So I don't do this often. So for patrons, I mean, I'm sorry, not a big deal. Uh, I'm sure you don't care. Uh, but you know, if you do want to become a patron, patron.com, no way Jose 2020, the lowest level is two bucks, which gives you that like in between type thing. Like I was getting at. Um, the highest is 20. Those are my sponsors. My sponsors are CD McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jeremy, who has an Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. He's also at Jeremy Rhymes on Twitter. And Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show uh, is another one. Uh, you know, he has a good show if you're looking to move out of the country or something along those lines, uh, you know, trying to reduce your tax burden or what have you. He's your guy. Go hit him up. Uh, yeah, like I said, this is OKC bombing. I do want to plug, uh, next week, uh, it'll be next Thursday. What's today? So it'd be the 21st. Uh, I have the, uh, widow of Duncan Lemp coming on. Uh, so if anyone's familiar with that story, that's a big deal. I think this is the first time she's spoken publicly. So that should be pretty good. 
uh, you know, get her side of the story and kind of get to know her and Duncan a little bit more on a personal level. Uh, so I'm excited about that. That should be good. I'm really honored. Um, so definitely go check that out. That one as well will not go behind a paywall just because of the aspect of what it is. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, for one, I want to get that out far and wide. And no, normally how I redo these, it messes with the view counts, which messes with the algo. So I want to hit that algo as best I can for that because I think it's important and I don't want to reduce its signal in any way, shape or form. Uh, so yeah. And uh, last thing, uh, make sure you go to toplobster.com. Uh, get uh, merch from him. Use Jose at checkout from 10% off. He has my show merch, a bunch of other shows merch, a lot of his original work as well. Uh, I mean, I say that, but he, all that work is original. He does all our artwork, but his own uh, designs aside, aside from podcast stuff. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get Richard here and get going. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, Jose. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, good. I'm excited to get back into this. I'm really enjoying this series, uh, even though like it further, further we go down, the further we get, like we, it, it expands and gets deeper. So, but I'm cool with it. Well, we can do 20 episodes of these for all I care. Uh, you know, I'm sure that the views will start petering down as it goes on, but whatever. Uh, the, the goal for this is to be an evergreen resource for people who want to look into this type of stuff. So um, I'm hoping, you know, uh, who knows? Uh, somebody else might come along, see this, and be like, "Ooh!" Then has a larger platform, and they can take it and run with it. I, I don't care. I just want to move this story forward. So I appreciate your time doing this, uh, and this is actually really cool seeing you finally be able to unravel all your work uh, in this manner. So, um, but yeah, I guess I mean, if you want to do in, uh, do your do kind of your intros, we can. Uh, but um, but anyone's probably at this point has probably seen the previous episodes. If not, we can go ahead and get into it. Um, but I guess sure. not. Oh, sure. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, just a quick rundown. My name's Richard Booth. I investigate the Oklahoma City bombing. I've gathered a great deal of documents and material uh, for students. And my hope is, just like you said a moment ago, is that more people will see this and perhaps become interested. So people, if they want to see that, they can go to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, and they'll find on there a great deal of documents that they could use in uh, learning more about this case and maybe even writing their own material on it. Yeah. You know, I'm going to keep, keep doing, having you do intro at the beginning. Cause I want to keep reminding people that the, the stuff we're talking about here is stuff that you have sources on. Cause I do think sometimes you get a little bit into what sounds like to someone who doesn't really be, you know, know much about it. It sounds like crazy territory, but it's like, no, there's source documents for this stuff. And uh, I feel like so far we've been fair about slapping down uh, stuff that is either more on the ridiculous side or more unfounded. Because uh, I mean, yeah, there might be something to it, but if it's if it's there's not uh, if it's kind of just weak, just one eyewitness, you know, or whatever, uh, you kind of got to show it for what it is. And with that, I guess that kind of perfectly segues into the first part, which uh, this episode isn't really. We kind of already covered McVeigh in the last episode, but I forgot to hit this part, which is kind of the last note of McVeigh, which is his death, and because uh, um, he got put to death uh, by uh, what chemical injection, I believe. Uh, right. I guess he had told, uh, from what I had heard, uh, he told a bunch of people that he, uh, uh, you know, it, while he was in that, you know, he was not going to, they were going to get him out of there. They was going to do pull some sort of trick uh, to, you know, so because he's sheep dipped or whatever. And he's, he's, you know, it's a secret thing. And, uh, you know, that they're going to somehow get him so he doesn't die. Uh, they're going to pull, pull a switcheroo type thing or, or whatever, whatever their plan was. Uh, and so I want to get your your take on this. I know this also has some like kind of maybe MK Ultra things. And I do think there is also the aspect of the narrative changing of McVeigh, because a lot of people who pay attention to this will realize that it's weird that when McVeigh first got picked up and in the earlier parts, he was very much like, no, I'm, uh, I'm working for the government. And you're kind of just like singing, singing, you know, saying everything. 
Uh, and then all of a sudden he was like, yep, uh, yeah, I did all this. And, you know, just kind of like was buying the narrative that he was that, you know, the uh, the official narrative, if you will. But uh, I've said enough. I'll let you go. You're the guy who actually knows what the hell he's talking about. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, really, a lot of this uh, narrative does come from McVeigh himself. And you're right. He did put on this public face during his trial and uh, throughout most of the time. Uh, there after the trial, you know, until he was executed, that he was solely responsible for the bombing. But then behind closed doors, whenever he was with defense counsel, and this we've discovered through looking at the defense memoranda and documents that are out there at the, the UT Austin Stephen Jones collection. But um, what you find in those documents is that McVeigh very much did go back and forth with different people on the defense team where he would sort of allude to uh, what he originally told his first attorneys, which is that, you know, he was acting in some sort of official capacity, uh, some some sort of uh, operation. And so he would allude to that and he would uh, make suggestions where he thought that maybe, yeah, he would be. Uh, exfiltrated from the prison or not actually executed. And you almost get the impression that he himself is not quite sure what position he's in. And he is just going off of faith that he thinks, oh, these people, like I did what I was supposed to do. <clears throat> and they're going to come in and, and take me out. And the way that I tend to view it is that if McVeigh was some sort of operator or even just a pawn in some type of operation, either one, he would be a, a, a loose end and he would be expendable. And the people who would run an operation like that um, are not going to let that loose end uh, just be there. They're, they're not going to come and, and take him out. They're just going to let the execution uh, you know, proceed and then problem is resolved. And so I think if he had any sort of hope that that might happen, you know, whether it's delusion or it's wishful thinking, um, doesn't really matter because either way, the results are going to be the same. You know, he's going to be executed and then no more loose ends. And so that's what I think happened. I think he was executed, absolutely. And you do see a lot of uh, uh, speculation from, you know, more unreliable sources who say, oh, yeah, he wasn't executed. He He's really still alive. And, you know, that was even on the cover of the Weekly World News. Uh, and Wendy Painting talks about this in her fantastic book, Aberration in the Heartland of the Real. She talks about how McVeigh would go back and forth with the defense team, making allusions to that. And she analyzes that whole uh, narrative very well. I suggest anyone interested in this subject needs to get out and, and get a copy of that book right away. It's Aberration in the Heartland of the Real by uh, Dr. Wendy Painting. Yeah, uh, I guess a couple little uh, aspects I do want to touch on before we move on. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I know the only thing that I thought had even a little bit of substance to this, this theory uh, is, uh, for one, obviously he said it, but that doesn't mean much because like you said, it could just be, you know, he that's just him saying it that doesn't mean he's actually not going to die uh, i mean that could be delusion that could be him being misled by handlers or, or or just going crazy whatever uh but the there like i said there's two things the first one is uh the uh the i guess there was an eyewitness report that they saw, thought they it looked like he was still breathing in the body bag essentially after the fact uh I, although like i kind of alluded to before we were talking about sources one eyewitness report is 
basically nothing to go off of. I don't know if you have anything to expand on that. I mean, I don't feel like there's a, probably too much more to say that. I don't know if you know much about the eyewitness, if it was, uh, I mean, if there is substance to the claim or if there's anything maybe you know of that would, you know, kind of discredit their claim. Uh, although even if it is a very credible court, uh, source, it's still one eyewitness and that's kind of nothing. So uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that aspect or, or not really. Yeah, I can elaborate on that. What we're talking about here basically is that when uh, McVeigh was executed, um, a lot of the victims of the bombing were able to go and um, view a like a simulcast of that that was through closed circuit TV, I believe, where they go in this room and they could, you know, watch on the, the TV. And of course, there are also people who were present there when it happened. And what they were talking about is really, you, you don't see a whole lot of, um, nothing really substantial. What you see is he's suspended on where they, the chair that they have you in when they give you the lethal injection and the injection is administered and you see shallow breathing, which then slowly stops. And I think what it was is one of the, um, one of the victims who was viewing this felt like um, she didn't feel uh, entirely convinced, you know, that, okay, he's dead. And because you really can't, unless you're right there next to a person, if, you know, if you're looking on closed circuit TV with not the greatest resolution, it's hard to tell, is that person breathing or not? And so there was just some question in her mind. And this might have been a person who was predisposed to think, that something else might have been going on here. So certainly that might have been their impression, um, but I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't advocate that as really as proof of much other than the fact that there was even questions over whether or not he died or not is really indicative of the sort of mystery that goes with this subject. Yeah, and I will add to that uh, just kind of anecdotally, my wife, uh, as long as I've been with her, has been in the veterinary field, and so she does euthanasias uh, quite a bit, which is basically almost the exact same thing they do. And people don't always die quite like you think they die. Uh, and even with euthanasia, sometimes they'll still be breathing. Their heart will still be beating for a period of time after. It's not like a sudden quick thing. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there's more to it. Maybe, I mean, obviously if this was like uh, minutes, like, uh, you know, like probably five minutes or more after the fact, yeah, that, that idea that I just put forward doesn't really hold a lot of water. But if it's kind of immediately... People have this Hollywood version of how death works, and that's not really how it works. You, you always see a movie, someone get shot, and boom, they're dead. Uh, that's not how, how death works. It's usually a – it's not always this easy process like we think it is. So, um, yeah, so there, there could be something to that. I don't know the details. So, But I do want to, and we'll move on. I want to touch on, because I'd be remiss if we didn't do it, because this is kind of where it leads into – uh, kind of possible MK Ultra things, which this would be more about the narrative changing, because I, I believe I, I think you showed me something uh, where there are, and you'll know more about this, uh, about you know possible individual who has loose ties to the MK Ultra program, uh, you know, being uh, essentially his psychologist or psychiatrist. I forget the difference between the two. Uh, while he was in prison, it was around that time his narrative all of a sudden you know kind of did a 180 and. Oh wow! Now, now he's all all for the the official narrative. Uh, so I don't know if you know more about that because uh, it is interesting. I don't know how much credibility there is to it, though. Yeah, yeah, I do know a bit about that. Um, what we're talking about here is, is there is a doctor who was notorious and a big part of MK Ultra 
he worked at the uh, University of Oklahoma for many years. And while he was working there, he was active in MKUltra and receiving funding. His name was Dr. Jollyan Jolly West. And Jolly West was uh, part of this whole thing and that he uh, he he was consulted as like a trauma expert and was brought uh, to the courthouse and uh, was brought down there. Now, we don't know or have any record that shows that he met with Tim McVeigh. So that we don't know. Uh, we just know that he was a part of the whole investigation and was some sort of trauma expert ostensibly there for the victims. But what we do know is that Dr. Jolly West's protege, a gentleman by the name of John Smith, uh, oddly enough, that's his real name, but uh, uh, John Smith was a guy who, who really studied under Jolly West and followed along the same career path. And he uh, he did things such as later in his career, I believe he worked at uh, like Guantanamo Bay course on what they like to call enhanced interrogation, which we all know is basically just torture. And so uh, he worked in these torture programs and he, uh, like Jolly West, was an expert on trauma. And with that comes being an expert on how to induce and manipulate trauma in a person to potentially alter their behavior. And so uh, Tim McVeigh met many times uh, with a number of different psychiatrists, but the one that he met with the most was Dr. Smith. And so there's been a lot of speculation as to what might have gone on in those sessions and whether or not McVeigh himself might have been subject to any sort of conditioning. And uh, that's a good question. And that's another point which I, I would uh, definitely refer people to read Wendy's book because she talks about that in, a lot in her book. And she goes over the records with McVeigh um, and how many times he, he met with this doctor, as well as some other interesting things in his medical records that stand out. For example, when he was in the Army, uh, he and you probably having been active duty military, you could recognize immediately how unusual this sounds, but he, he had over something like between 60 and 70 dentist appointments when he was in the military. Yeah. Uh, no, no one goes to the dentist 70 times. So what was that? What was actually happening there is anyone's guess, but it certainly would raise a red flag for anybody that, you know, that they'll deny you uh, anything and say, you know, take an aspirin and walk it off. They're not going to come and see you, see you 70 times. You know. Yeah, we were probably go to the dentist once a year. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, anything more than that, it would be I don't know, unless you had some sort of weird work that you needed done. And but even then, it would, I I can't really understand more than like I don't know five times, and even that's pushing it in a year. Like I, right. I don't. Yeah, that's a. All, although I'm assuming these records probably come from maybe his unit and uh, showing because they put in their schedule whenever you were gone. Uh, and I know being in, there was a period of time where I had control of the unit schedule and I used to be able to pop my own appointments in and people sometimes abuse that. And if you're someone, obviously, if we're playing this, like, is he fed? Is he not? Obviously, someone would. May, I mean, obviously, they should have been maybe a little bit more creative with their excuses. But, uh, you know, so they just someone was kind of being pretty lazy, which makes sense for government work. So someone that that would definitely point me towards something was going on that or he got a hold of the. Uh, uh, the account of his uh, unit schedule and was uh, really you know, skating a lot and no one was catching on to it, which even that's a little ridiculous because um, that is a lot of appointments. But uh, I do want to let you guys know, I uh, I do want to, I'm probably going to try to in the future go into MKUltra because I mean, even just bringing it up, if you're someone who's not familiar with it, it sounds crazy, but MKUltra is a thing that happened uh, and it's undeniable. Um, you know, it is a thing that's happened. Um, 
Abita, you know, and, you know, we touched on, like we just touched on a second ago with uh, him meeting with it, like say with Jolly West and, and Smith there, I'm sure the records are kind of sparse, uh, but I mean, what that's to be expected if there's some crazy stuff going on, just like with the sheep dip stuff, uh, you know, uh, obviously that stuff you're not going to be able to get a hold of. So the lack of evidence isn't really evidence one way or another. Uh, I mean, obviously you can't, you know, latch onto it immediately. I do know, I don't know if we touch on it. There is, I, I believe there was someone who said there are some things that were confirmed uh, that point to him still having uh, um, ties with the military or the federal government after that were yes. confirmed. Uh, although I think those were things that were not released, if I re remember correctly. Those were records that were sealed, but there were multiple people who attested to it who saw it. But it, and for some reason, it didn't come up as defense when it, when it happened. Uh, well, there is something in particular that, that you can refer to that is an official record, and that basically is on his death certificate um, where it lists a person's occupation. It said uh, United States Army soldier. Um, and, you know, if you have already been uh, you're, you're retired or you're discharged and your actual occupation for the last three or four years is, you know, selling things at a gun show, it's not going to say soldier on your death certificate so people maybe are reading into that a little bit but on the other hand maybe not it's definitely unusual yeah yeah i don't know the details of that i, I know if you are a veteran you get the flag so i don't know if maybe that's why it's in there i don't know because they you do are entitled to get a flag at your burial um but uh yeah i mean i don't know the details of that maybe maybe that's the case i don't know but all right let's move into the main character we want to talk to today uh, talk about today which you know much like a uh, strassmeyer in the last episode is one of those characters who doesn't really get his due i didn't even know there was much more to him um you know i did think it was a little bit screwy uh you know some of the aspects of it but i didn't know that the wormhole went a whole lot deeper i thought the evidence ended with just kind of like huh that's weird and uh apparently not so because you have a whole uh from the notes you sent me you have a whole whole you're 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 probably about to go to town here so i i'm excited for it because this is a character i like i said when it when i first heard about him and how he is sort of tied to mcveigh i thought well well those are some convenient excuses for uh the situation uh i don't want to you know, take away too much from it but uh yeah roger moore let's go ahead and get into it i'll, I'll let you go this is where I'll, you'll go into probably going a little bit of Scott Horton mode. And because uh, once again, this is stuff I don't really have much to say about because I don't really know much about it. So this is going to be all new stuff to me because I haven't been able to find it elsewhere. And I've been trying to do my research in this time. Uh, I mean, mostly podcasts. I haven't been able to dig through articles like I'm sure you can because, uh, you know, mostly it's me listening to podcasts while I'm working. So, um, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Who is Roger Moore? Yeah, so Roger Moore is definitely a key figure in this case. And once you really examine his history, his background, and a lot of the context and details, how important he is really starts to become evident. And so in the official story, Roger Moore is a guy who Tim McVeigh would go to gun shows with, and they would both split the cost for a booth. And in a booth together, they would sell their wares at the gun show. And he supposedly was, you know, friends, just friends with Roger Moore. He'd go and stay with him at his house every now and then and visit. And so he's this guy who's supposedly a business partner with Tim McVeigh. And in the official story, it says that uh, Roger Moore was robbed on November 5th, 1994 
by Terry Nichols, and he robbed him of over 70 firearms and precious stones, you know, gold, jade, things like this, things of uh, material value that were then sold and used to fund the Oklahoma City bombing plot for things like purchasing the ammonium nitrate, purchasing nitromethane, uh, paying for hotel stays, all this stuff. So the official story says here that McVeigh and Nichols worked together to rob Roger Moore. Poor Roger Moore is a victim of a robbery. And that, well, sure enough, then he shows up in court as a witness against Timothy McVeigh. And he was made into like a star witness for the prosecution. And the real facts of the matter are is that uh, Roger Moore should have been a co-defendant in the case. He was a co-conspirator in the bombing. He was involved in in um, basically arranging for this so-called robbery um, in such a way that he would be protected uh, from suspicion, which ultimately didn't work too well, and we'll go into that. And so he's this co-defendant uh, co and, and co-conspirator in the bombing who funded the Oklahoma City bombing plot by allowing these materials to be stolen from him and then sold by a third party who could then use uh, that, that funding to support the plot. Roger, um, that is, uh, Roger Moore also provided uh, the binary explosives that were used in the bomb, something called kinestic or kinepack, uh, explosives. He provided that to uh, Timothy McVeigh. And so uh, what I think is important is we'll talk a little bit about the first time they supposedly met, and then I'll start to go into his background. And after you look at the information about Roger Moore, um, what we know about that robbery and about his involvement starts to look a whole lot different. He, very similar to Andy Strassmeyer with these intelligence connections. So uh, Roger Moore was born in 1934, uh, which would have made him, you know, about 20 years old in uh, 54. And so I know he was in the Air Force and I, I'm, I don't have the records, so I'm just speculating here, but I'm thinking that was probably in the 1950s. OK, after the Air Force, uh, he, he went over to um, the University of Tulsa, where he um, he was an undergraduate and he uh, got uh, his uh, he got a degree there. And while he was doing that, he worked for North American Aviation, which later became Rockwell, uh, the defense contractor. And when he worked at North American Aviation, he held a top secret security clearance. Both he and his wife did. And so he's working as this government defense contractor at uh, North American Aviation. And he leaves there to. Uh, go out in private life, uh, living in Florida, where he decides to um, start various, he, and he operates various boat building businesses in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, and then in, um, um, I'm drawing a blank, but he moved, there's another, another city in uh, Florida that he moved to. So what Roger Moore did is he became a millionaire uh, operating these boat building businesses and what he did was he, he built custom uh, uh, fiberglass boats, and these were both speed boats, and he built pontoon boats. And it was not just for individuals like fishermen or for commercial use, but he also sold them to governments. There was an interesting news clipping um, 
um, about Moore from 1969, where Moore is quoted in the newspaper talking about uh, saying, well, as you know, we have sold votes to various foreign governments, which come to uh, find out later, he, uh, you know, had sold votes to uh, Vietnam and to Panama. And so he's selling custom gunboats to Panama. He's selling uh, custom boats to the United States Navy and speedboats to the CIA. And this, I believe, is where Roger Moore may have uh, began to make his intelligence connections, if not earlier than that, perhaps when he was in the Air Force, he might have developed some of those connections. And so what you see here with Roger Moore is, first of all, before he's going out on the gun show circuit in the 90s with McVeigh, he's already he's a millionaire. He could be retired. He could be staying at home, doing whatever he wants. But instead, he is going and seemingly networking with extremists, uh, doing a, a job that he actually admitted. He There's a quote from him in Wendy Painting's book where he talks about how he hates it. He hates this job at the gun shows. So why is he going to the gun shows and running a booth if he hates it? Well, he's doing it. And so it looks a lot like he might be serving a... Uh, a role here or possibly involved in some kind of operation. And um, what I'd like to, to get into here uh, right now is to illustrate how Roger Moore also was some sort of protected or highly protected federal asset. That's how he's described in Wendy Painting's book as a highly protected federal asset. And the way we can tell that is that there were at least about four times when he appeared on the radar of the uh, ATF and the FBI and state police. And every time that happened, the charges were just mysteriously dropped or the police uh, just gave up on it and then later said they didn't have any records of it. So one example of that is in 1988, the FBI had a program called Operation Punch-Out. And this was a program that was investigating materials that have been that were being stolen from uh, military bases. And Roger Moore was recorded on hidden camera uh, selling ammunition, and he offered uh, offering up bootleg porn uh, to some people that he told that he was getting from an underground network. And he said this to an informant on camera, and that got him on the radar of Operation Punch-Out. Well, the U.S. attorney in Salt Lake City uh, dropped all charges in 1991 at the request of the FBI, who uh, claimed that they had a lack of evidence in spite of having him on hidden camera uh, violating a number of different uh, uh, laws. And so that's one example of where he kind of is let off the hook. But he doesn't go for very long before it happens again. In 1989, uh, Roger Moore offered to sell 100 pounds of C4 explosives through the U.S. mail. He uh, agreed to do this with someone who it turns out was an ATF informant. And so they go to the ATF and they report it. And following this, um, law enforcement started following uh, or started that is investigating Roger Moore and something really interesting happens and that is that the state police are investigating this in Arkansas um, all of a sudden they start tracking a different person named Roger Moore so they start 
basically investigating the wrong guy. There's a guy named Roger Moore who is a young gangbanger. Uh, no significance. He's in his 20s. He doesn't, you know, he's not the same description. He's not even the same race. He doesn't have the same he doesn't have a or he has a that is to say a very different criminal record and so he's essentially let off this atf investigation for trying to sell 100 pounds of c4 because we're to believe that perhaps the law, law enforcement is unable to figure out which roger moore they're they're looking for and so he 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 ex escapes any sort of uh, scrutiny for that um, and then again in march of 1993 um, Arkansas and Oregon State Police uh, began exchanging information with the FBI about Roger Moore because he was selling ammunition, flares, and other materials to a convicted felon, a guy who is an arsonist and who had been convicted of attempted murder in Oregon. And of course, uh, transporting these sorts of materials across state lines without a federal firearms license to a convicted felon is illegal. And just like all of the previous investigations, whenever it involved the ATF or the FBI, nothing became of it and uh, he got off scot-free. And so when you look at these examples here and then you uh, look at the, the statement in Wendy Painting's book that he was a highly protected federal asset, I think that is an accurate description. As you see with these assets, charges are always dropped or not pursued, and they seem to be able to get away with a lot more than the average uh, citizen can get away with. And so we have here a guy who at the time he met McVeigh, uh, all the things I previously mentioned had already happened. And he is here at a gun show and it's January, I think of 1993, and it's in uh, Florida at a gun show where he supposedly meets Tim McVeigh for the first time. And uh, he and it, now bear in mind, this information comes from Roger Moore's own 302 reports. So we can't exactly trust that it's entirely accurate. I think there might have been more of a relationship there or that Moore might have lied about how he initially met him. But needless to say, um, what Moore said is that he met him at this gun show in Florida. And he goes up to McVeigh's booth and he sees McVeigh is selling some items, but he buys from McVeigh a Confederate flag and a clock, something like that. And uh, they begin talking, make acquaintance of one another. And before you know it, they're now going to gun shows together and splitting uh, the booth costs. And McVeigh is visiting Roger Moore in Arkansas at his ranch and staying for days at a time where he begins working with Roger and his girlfriend, Karen Anderson. And what he does for Moore during this time is several times uh, he is involved with helping Moore with some uh, fire, different firearms uh, deliveries. And one of these deliveries that Tim McVeigh talks about in one of the defense memos is uh, a time that he went to, uh, he drove from Arkansas to Fort Lauderdale and he delivered to Fort Lauderdale uh, a shipment of weapons. And that shipment of weapons included a rocket launcher, uh, four or five boxes of, of what he called product, smoke and CS grenades, flares, and exotic ammunition for heavy weapons. And he was delivering this, uh, uh, these materials to an anti-Castro Cuban exile group who at the time in Florida were training 
to overthrow and assassinate Fidel Castro. And we know from history that these groups who are training to overthrow and assassinate Fidel Castro are largely co-opted by and supported by the Central Intelligence Agency. So it's very interesting that Roger Moore is associating with people who uh, are connected to the CIA, and he's, he's essentially serving as an arms dealer for them. And that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. In addition Real to... Real quick, uh, yeah. sorry, I don't mean to throw off because I know you, you I want to throw off your uh, your thing, but to remind you when we get back to it, uh, we're kind of at the whole Cuba stuff. But uh, I, I don't know, this piqued my interest. I mean, maybe you don't know more, maybe you do, because I don't know why I found it weird. He was doing bootleg porn earlier on. Uh, he was selling from an underground network. Do you know what kind of porn because it, it and i'm not trying to get crude or anything i'm just curious because no, no, it's very weird that this would uh, alert the authorities in any or it would be this uh, to that level like because i mean for one everyone's familiar with things like epstein and stuff it's well known that you know the feds will sometimes uh do and i'm not even necessarily saying kitty porn but it could be all sorts of weird shit that could be used to implicating certain targets in some way, shape or form. So I'm curious if you have more notes on that or if you, or if they was just very sparse on that, because that kind of piqued my interest because obviously that would kind of more so suggest itself towards some uh, fuckery uh, essentially. So, yeah, so definitely it's highly suspicious that you have a guy here who's a known federal asset connected to the CIA who's talking about, bootleg porn that comes from a quote underground network that's highly suspicious now what type it was i don't know Um, what i do know is that it was in 1988 that this occurred and that moore said this to an undercover um, agent for i believe the fbi and operation punch out but uh, certainly that that would catch my attention for all the reasons that you mentioned and uh, I wish I did know more about it. Okay. Well, it sounds like uh, maybe it was uh, kind of light on details for a reason, possibly, or maybe not. Yeah. Uh, although it's weird that a uh, feds got involved in any way with uh, some sort of porn bootlegging thing. Like who cares? But, you know, I don't know, maybe they could have, uh, I don't know, but you know, trying to be fair here, but all right. Uh, well, I guess we'll get back to his Cuba uh, or you were at kind of Cuba connections to remind you where you're at. Uh, I didn't yeah. mean to throw you off, but that really piqued my interest. Like, huh? Cause uh, that, that's a whole other wormhole, but um, go on. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And also in terms of the bootleg porn deal, um, what was happening there is in 1988, uh, he was caught up in this Operation Punch-Out and they're investigating this theft of military equipment from uh, military bases. And he was recorded on video basically selling, he was selling uh, ammunition. And while he is selling this ammunition, which the feds think might be this stolen ammunition they're investigating, he mentions that, oh, I can also get you this you know, this black market porn or whatever. And that, of course, caught the feds interest because they think, well, if he's involved with shady stuff with firearms, this is probably not your regular porn. You never know. It, you know, it could have been, but. And given the timing too, it doesn't even have to be anything as sinister as like kitty porn. Because in the 1988, it could have been he was selling gay porn, which I mean, by today's standards is not that crazy. But in 1988, if you're someone of, you know, any note, anyone uh, with any sort of position of power, that is an easy way to blackmail you. If like, hey, I sold you this guy gay porn. Uh, you clearly, you know, you can you can kind of push him out of the closet or use that to, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, so it doesn't. I'm not necessarily implying that some crazy stuff, but you, we we also need to remember that uh, kind of the the time we're living in and 
uh, the time this happened and how different our cultural sensibilities are. So, uh, absolutely. But, yeah, absolutely. So, Blackmail is one of the things that did come to mind. So I wish I knew more about that. I mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't put it past uh, Roger Moore. Once you look at the other connections he has, that kind of thing would be very uh, fitting for him. So uh, basically, yes, with the, uh, the sales of arms and so forth to these anti-Castro-Cuban groups, what we have to look at here with Roger Moore is he actually has a history of selling arms and serving as a paymaster for various groups that the CIA is fronting or the CIA is supporting uh, during the 1980s. And uh, to start with, what I would say is that there is a reporter for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and his name is Rodney Bowers, and he covered the um, Roger Moore uh, in the Oklahoma City bombing investigation. He did a very good investigation. He had a number of sources, and one of his sources was an informant, uh, an agency, a CIA guy who uh, worked in uh, Iran, worked on the Iran Contra deal. And what he told Rodney Bowers is that he knew Roger Moore in the 1980s. And he, when he knew him in the 80s, he went by his alias, a name named Bob Anderson. Now, this is the same name he used on the gun show circuit. He would call himself uh, Bob Anderson. Uh, he had a couple of aliases, but usually it was Bob something. And so... Uh, this guy's told Bowers that he knew uh, Roger Moore by the alias Bob Anderson, and he claimed that Roger Moore was involved with a guy named Don Aronow in the Iran-Contra affair. Now, Don Aronow is a very well-known, world-renowned speedboat record title holder who is involved in speedboat racing and involved with people who were involved with cocaine trafficking. And so when you, you see the phrase, you know, cocaine cowboys, or you do any reading about that, uh, Don Aronow's name comes up. And Roger Moore is running his businesses there in Florida at the same place where, where Aronow is, is uh, doing business. And, uh, yeah, this informant says that they knew one another and that they were working together in the Iran-Contra affair. Now, um, another, uh, another thing that kind of plays into that is that a, um, another source, a separate source, um, said that Roger Moore's company sold gunboats to the Panamanian Navy um, through a contract that had been uh, given from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Oliver North gave this contract to Don Aronow, who he had also had a boat building business. And uh, this this third or this other source reports that uh, Don Aronow subcontracted it out to Roger Moore. So he basically, you know, he couldn't fulfill the type of boat requests they were asking for, the type of gunboats, but he knew Moore could. So he subcontracted it to Moore. And that is just one way that Moore would have been involved with the Iran-Contra players. And that, that again, is just one way. Uh, you also have Roger Moore involved in the, um, well, there, there was a, uh, mining of the Nicaraguan harbors during um, Iran-Contra in the 1980s. So there are at least four sources um, that report on Moore's involvement in an abortive uh, Oliver North-led operation to mine the Nicaraguan harbors in 1985. That's an investigative memo from McVeigh's defense team, an investigative memo from Nichols' defense team, 
uh, book uh, by an Iran Contra player, and uh, David Hoffman's book, The Oklahoma City, and the Oklahoma City Bombing, The Politics of Terror. So all four of those talk about Moore's involvement with that uh, mining operation. Now, um, I can only speculate because I don't have a great deal of details, but my speculation is, is that Moore's involvement would probably have something to do with producing boats that were used in this operation. Um, and so that, that likely is what you would see there. And so that operation uh, was likely a part of the CIA's ongoing efforts against the Nicaraguan Sandinistas. And you had figures there such as Dwayne Claridge, uh, CIA counterterrorism chief and future intelligence chief John Negroponte, who is an ambassador or diplomat at the time. So you've basically got more in this circle of people in Florida who are involved in Iran-Contra. He's making speedboats for Panama. He's making speedboats for Vietnam. He is involved with these Iran-Contra figures. And we have multiple different sources who allege that Roger Moore was a uh, either an arms dealer or a paymaster or both for two groups that are connected to the CIA. That is the anti-Cuban or that is the anti-Castro Cuban exiles that we mentioned. And then secondly, that is a group called Civilian Material Assistance or CMA. Uh, CMA is a group that was formed in the 1980s, kind of a militia type group, but it's interesting because it's formed by these guys with spook connections and what it seems to be is a cutout where they can form a supposedly civilian group that uh, purchases large amounts of firearms and equipment and then transfers them to uh, Honduras or other third party country where it can then be transferred to Nicaragua to support the Contras. Okay, so you have him involved. Re real quick, uh, yeah. just for the sake of the audience and myself as well, I think I have an idea what you mean when you say this, but when you say a term like paymaster, yes. I just wanna clear up for the audience in case we have somebody who's not really, someone who goes deep into conspiracies and stuff like that. Uh, what would be a paymaster, uh, just quickly? A paymaster is basically like a bag man. A paymaster is a guy who oftentimes is a cutout for the CIA, whose job is to go to various uh, groups that are supported by the CIA and provide them with funds. Back in the 60s and 70s, uh, and the, you know, back in the old day, the way they do it, they literally would have suitcases full of money. And uh, their job was to deliver the money you know, deliver the funds, just like Roger Moore would deliver the guns, he would deliver the funds. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. CMA, I believe. Maybe I got the acronym wrong, but... Uh, no, that's right. That's CMA, <laughs> Civilian Material Assistance. And okay. there's a whole record about them. Uh, persons can look into online on various books about Iran-Contra or Google it, and you'll see a whole bunch of stuff. And one thing that's really interesting is that uh, a researcher named Ed Berger did a Freedom of Information Act request for CMA. And when he did, he got a lot of documents. And in those documents, he found one that talked about how the CMA and the anti-Castro-Cuban exile groups were actually working together to help fund the Contras. And so at this very time that Roger Moore is selling firearms to CMA and to the anti-Castro-Cuban exiles, and he's alleged to be a paymaster for both,
we have FBI documents that say that those two groups are working together on this Contra operation. And so it's my position that Roger Moore certainly played a, a big part, I would say a mid-level management type part in Iran-Contra as a cutout, someone who is between the higher ups at the agency, like between the director of operations and between the operational groups that they're supporting, like the exile groups or CMA. Roger is like the buffer and he, he's the guy who provides them with funds and, and guns. And so at the time Timothy McVeigh meets him, he doesn't know all of this stuff. But this guy is obviously a spook based upon this background. And we have information that really verifies that for us. And um, what I'm thinking about here is that uh, when Roger Charles wrote his book, Oklahoma City Bombing, or that is Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters, he had an, a many intelligence sources. Roger worked in the Pentagon for more than 20 years. He knew a great deal of people in the intelligence community. And uh, he had an intelligence source who advised him that Roger Moore once taught explosives and sabotage techniques at the CIA's Camp Perry, uh, the facility that they call the farm. And he said, yeah, you know, he, he uh, we taught explosives and sabotage together as he saw Roger Moore on the Today Show. He saw him on the Today Show around 95, 96, and he calls up. He, uh, his friend and tells him, hey, I worked with this guy at Camp Perry. And so the, uh, this source told Roger that, and I have every reason to believe in the veracity of Roger's sources. And another intelligence source uh, told a man named David Hoffman. David Hoffman wrote a book about the bombing, and he told Hoffman uh, that Roger Moore also uh, had been working as sort of a snitch for the FBI. And he said that Roger Moore's uh, FBI handler was an agent named Tom Ross, who worked out of the Hot Springs uh, office in Arkansas. Now, when I asked Roger uh, Charles about this, what Roger told me was is that he believed that Roger Moore was a professional snitch. You know, he, he was giving information to the FBI and he was working for the CIA. He essentially was reaping the benefits of being this professional government asset. And I think that probably is largely accurate. And uh, another thing to note is that, uh, let me look at my notes here. There was one other thing I wanted to mention in relation to this. Yes, yeah, so there was a news story June 22nd of 1995 in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And Roger Moore was quoted in that newspaper article saying that whatever I was doing for the FBI has been fucked up because they blew my cover. And so Roger Moore is upset uh, that the FBI is talking about him and his name is in the newspaper. And he's saying that it's going to screw up uh, whatever it was he was doing for the FBI. And if you think back to what happened with him in this Operation Punch-Out and all these other times he got in trouble between 18 or between 1988 and 1993. Well, if he was working for the FBI, that would certainly explain why all those times he was seemingly getting in trouble. It was just charges were dropped for the investigation mysteriously vanished. And then, well, that's obviously because he was helping these federal agencies as a part of their investigations. Uh, to be clear, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if I maybe missed the time frame when that uh, newspaper uh, article came out. 
yeah. what was he referring to? Like, was this the OKC or was this a separate thing? Uh, yeah, it was. The cover was blown. It was OKC. It was okay. June of 1995, and he was talking about all the news coverage about um, the robbery and about um, uh, him being on the gun show circuit with McVeigh. He just all of the attention. He didn't like the details were published there. And the reason he said that is, remember, when he was on the gun show circuit, he used an alias. He called himself Bob Anderson or Bob from Arkansas. And these newspaper articles identified him. They said it, Roger Moore, a.k.a. you know Bob from Arkansas. And so they laid it all out. And when he was on the gun show circuit, you know, he wanted uh, he wanted uh, to use this alias. But now his real identity is out there and he's just upset about that. Okay. And so with all of that in mind, I think what we should look at then is the, the supposed robbery that happened, which funded the Oklahoma City bombing. Yes. Which to be clear, real quick, for you, that's the only thing I knew. I knew he was supposedly raw. The only thing that you when you look at most sources is Roger Moore is mentioned, even ones like conspiratorial sources. If you're going down the wormhole, even then, usually the most you're going to see is this, that the, the aspect of he got robbed and that just gets breezed over like, oopsies, you were robbed, you know, and, you know, how convenient, uh, which I mean, I know the first time I heard that it kind of raised a little flag. But I mean, even me, I was going down conspiratorial sources. So I assumed, you know, they'd have you know, a little bit more, but no, most even of them breeze over this. Like, yep, he was brought, robbed, and that's kind of where it ends. So I'm kind of surprised there's more sources, uh, which kind of, you know, goes more to the idea of how crazy this whole OKC thing is and how much stuff just gets breezed over, even by sources that are tend to go down the conspiracy wormhole. So, uh, yeah, all right, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off, but go on. No, no, it's fine. Absolutely. So you're absolutely correct. You go to the most sources there. It just talks about the robbery and says he's a gun dealer. You rarely see any mention of his connection to Iran-Contra, the fact that he was selling arms to these people who were CIA cutouts, the fact that he was a paymaster, um, the fact that he was working for the FBI even. You don't ever see any of that. And uh I think we're going to see a great deal more about that in a new book that will be coming out. Uh, Wendy Painting is working on her second book, and Roger Moore is a big subject of that book. And I know that she's going to have a whole lot of new information about him. And so I'm excited about that and looking forward uh, to that book. And Yeah, maybe so we'll have to do a, a, an addendum to the series when that comes out, if more stuff comes out. But, but go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, absolutely fine. So with the robbery, um, this was in the fall of 1994, and that is when the Oklahoma City bombing was planned. It was in the fall of 1994. I believe it was planned out of Elohim City uh, with Andy Strassmeyer and Tim McVeigh, among others. And uh, I believe that uh, Tim McVeigh discussed this uh, idea for a robbery with Roger Moore and that they agreed on uh, doing this. And one thing um, to note before I get into the details about the robbery is that Terry Nichols claims that McVeigh explicitly told him uh, that he, Nichols, was chosen to carry out the robbery so that if Roger Moore was ever polygraphed, he could truthfully testify that he did not know the robber, as Roger Moore did not know Terry Nichols. So if he was polygraphed and they asked him, you know, do you know this person? He could say, no and you know he would be telling the truth so what happens here is tim mcveigh goes to terry nichols and he tells him look um we want uh, i want you to you know you're going to need to rob this guy and 
don't worry. It's going to be really easy. It's going to be so easy. You're not going to have to do anything. You won't have to lift a finger. He's going to be like a kitten. You'll be able to get everything you want. There'll be no resistance. Just trust me. And so his whole uh, selling of it to Nichols just makes it sound like without actually saying it, you know, the guy's in on it. So what happens here is that uh, Roger Moore, um, he's at his house on uh, November 5th, 1994. And now he has a normal place where he parks his van. And this day, the van wasn't parked in the normal parking spot. Instead, he has it parked directly by the ranch house. So maybe if a person was carrying many, many pounds of weapons out the front door, they would only have to walk a foot or two to load them into Roger Moore's van. And so and that is exactly what happened. Uh, a robber shows up. Uh, he uh, puts uh, Moore in flexicuffs and he proceeds to take 70 firearms out of his house along with these precious metals. He loads them into Roger Moore's van, which he then drives away a short distance until he gets to his own truck and he transfers the weapons from Moore's van to his own vehicle and leaves. And so what happens then is Roger Moore leaves his home and not only does he go directly to the spot where the van has been abandoned, he somehow knows exactly where that is and he recovers his van. And of course the keys are left there in the vehicle for him and all the hallmarks of this is obviously something that is planned. And so um, the insurance investigator who investigated this, a, name, a man named uh, Rick Spivey, uh, he uh, investigated the robbery and he didn't believe it. He thought it was a put on. He thought it was bogus. Same thing with the neighbor, Walt Powell. Uh, Walt Powell said that Moore had acted really insincerely, that he believed the robbery was a put on. And it sounded like he was reading from a script almost. Um, the son of the neighbor, a guy named Lance Powell, um, he noted to that his father actually had to coax Roger Moore into calling the cops. Um, and what happened here is Roger left his own home because his phone lines were cut and by you know the person who robbed him, which I believe was planned in advance. I believe it was planned in advance, so specifically so that Moore could go and make a phone call at his neighbor's house, so the phone call wherever he was calling would not be on his on his um, phone bill. So what happens is, is he goes uh, to this neighbor's house and he makes a phone call and the neighbors say that they heard him talking in a very low voice, explaining on the phone to someone what had just happened in the robbery. And uh, we never did find out who it was that he talked to and uh, who it was that he told about that. So he called this person before he called the police, which is really interesting. And so then finally, when the police were called, uh, the police officer responding to the call uh, later branded the case. He said it was bullshit. That was it. Those were his exact words. So everybody involved from the neighbors, the insurance investigator, the police officer investigating it, they all believe it's a put on. They all believe Roger Moore is completely involved in it. And even Tim McVeigh said uh, for the longest time, he did not think that Roger Moore was going to be, ever testify against him because you have to understand from McVeigh's perspective, Roger Moore is his co-conspirator. So he's thinking, no, he's not going to testify against me. He, he just didn't see it coming. And what McVeigh told his uh, attorneys was is that if Moore ever decides to testify against me, there's enough evidence available to sink Roger Moore. 
but what he doesn't, what McVeigh doesn't understand is that the prosecutors have a strategy here. What they're going to do is they're going to limit the scope of the conspiracy to just McVeigh and Nichols. They're going to take one of the co-defendants, Roger Moore, and turn him into this victim and this star witness. And in that way, they don't actually have to call any of the eyewitnesses who all saw McVeigh with John Doe too. They don't have to call any of them because they've got Roger Moore there testifying uh, about McVeigh and they've got Michael Fortier testifying about McVeigh. So they turn these co-defendants or these two guilty people, these co-conspirators into witnesses to then prevent from having to call the actual eyewitnesses, which was a brilliant strategy on their part. It was a good way of limiting the conspiracy and preventing the exposure of the other accomplices. It's very reminiscent of, uh, I don't know if you saw the fluff piece that New York, uh, was the New York Times? And maybe it was the New York Times put out about Ray Epps lately, which anyone who pays attention to January 6th stuff, he was the guy, there's multiple videos of him going, let's go to the Capitol. And I think he even said some stuff like kind of insinuating like, hey, violence or breaking shit, whatever. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, now there was a uh, article essentially like, like, oh, poor this guy. He's the center oh, of all yes. these conspiracy theories. They're oh, making him look like a victim. Absolutely yeah, and, and right. He's just poor old grandpa, like, oh, just living his life. And it's like, uh, but he was the, I think he was on like the, the most wanted list for like a day and then got taken off and almost immediately. And, you know, lo and behold, here he is now, but it's like, uh, you know, can't teach an old dog new tricks. And it seems like this shit is wearing off, but this is part of why I think this series is so useful. So people can start identifying this shit and not fall for the same old stuff. Cause, uh, and luckily we have resources like what we're doing right now to where we can kind of illuminate people. And I think that's why, you know, you people see the, like all the, the posts I saw of Ray Epps was ratioed to hell. Everyone was pointing it out. It's ridiculous. So people are getting to the point where we're getting wise to it. But the problem is uh, they're using the same tricks. And these were stuff that was happening before. People think this is like a novel thing that's happening now. No, this has been going on for a long time. But uh, go on. That's right. It's absolutely the same playbook. You see the same tricks. They'll take their uh, the people that they have who are uh, agitators or provocateurs and uh, try to make them look like victims. Uh, or, you know, they will create a plot entirely using their own provocateurs and agents, like you see with the Whitmer plot, where the entire thing is advanced by a provocateur, which is exactly what we saw with Andy Strassmeyer. You know, and so very much it is the same Fed playbook and uh, people are getting wise to it. And uh, right now, I think it, I agree with you that it's a great time for people to be investigating the Oklahoma City bombing because there are roots to what you're seeing today in a case like this. Same feds, same playbook, same tactics. And right now, I'm sure that there are other groups that are thoroughly penetrated and have provocateurs in them, you know, um, all these groups you see like Patriot Front or whatever, I'm certain that, you know, at least a third of them are probably snitches or, or you know, yeah. provocateurs. Yeah, I mean, not to go down in a wormhole, you know, on this uh, this type of thing, but you look at things like MK Ultra and Operation Mockingbird, stuff like that, they talk about how, like, if you look into the uh, exposed arguments, it's all, it kind of implies, oh, yeah, we stopped doing that because it's bad, whatever. But it's like, uh, okay, but why would we believe it? Because it, very well we may hear 50 years from now that some other project that's you know basically an offshoot of this has come to light. And you know once you realize they've done it before, there's no reason why they wouldn't be doing it now or in some other way. Yeah, maybe it's not MKUltra, maybe relabeled. Maybe it's not Operation Mocking, Mockingbird. It may be relabeled, but 
these things, uh, I mean, once you know they're willing to do it, there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't do it now. So but, that's yeah. absolutely right. If you have, you know, a kid who cries wolf once he's cried wolf three times, the next time he does it, you know, from reputation that he's doing it again. And mm -hmm. so in this case, the feds have absolutely no credibility. If you look at the judge, judge a person by their past actions and their history, not what they say, but what they do. Yeah. And, and like you, you said, these are a lot of the same people because people don't realize these are unelected officials, essentially, you know, the deep state, if you will. Uh, these are people that, you know, the bureaucratic aspect of the state that uh, exists and leech off of. And I'm not a fan of the state in general, but it's almost even worse when you have people behind the background that are able to completely uh, off put any sort of responsibility and they aren't elected. They're just appointed by the people that come in. Uh, and obviously they have their own ways of probably, you know, uh, sort of coercing uh, political individuals to keep them in their spots. And, you know, they stay there forever. So I'm sure a lot of people were talking about that were involved in the in the Oklahoma City bombing aspect of it on the Fed side of things. Are pro probably many of them are involved now. If not, maybe they're protégés. So, uh, yep. but yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to take us down that wormhole, but go on. <laughs> no, no, that's a good tangent to go on because all of this really is relative to the Oklahoma City bombing. I think the Oklahoma City bombing is a, um, it's almost like a blueprint for some of the things that we are seeing today. And my biggest fear, of course, is I think they're going to do a part two. I think there's going to be something else that's going to happen. And it'll be something that researchers like myself and other researchers will probably recognize instantly. You know, we'll, we'll know when it happens. But that's my biggest fear, because when you don't hold these people accountable and they can get away with saying John Doe number two doesn't exist and they can get away with taking uh, people who are co-conspirators and turning them into these uh, victim witnesses, um, that just, show, you know, it just enables them and it allows them to to do it again. And that's what I think will happen if you don't hold someone accountable and you don't get the truth out, you know, the, we're doomed to repeat history. And so I'm afraid that something like this could happen again. That's why I think it's so important for people to examine the Oklahoma City bombing and to look into this. And again, I just uh, recommend people read uh, that there are only a few good books on this. There, there's Wendy's book. There's Roger Charles's book. There's a really good book called The Final Report. Uh, the final report, which came out in 2001, which was the result of um, a grand jury that investigated the Oklahoma City bombing. And they put out a really, really good thick report on their investigation where they find all of this. But then a great deal of these other things that we're finding, like all these spook connections for Roger Moore, um, those are all relatively new. And at least within the last, say, 10 years or so that they've really started to come out. Um, one good example of that is something that was found recently is that um, there was a document published on the CIA's website on their reading room. They published a document that they had declassified and a friend of mine on, on Twitter uh, found that and uh, he showed it to me and I'd never seen it and he showed it to uh, another uh, researcher and they'd never they'd never seen it either. So it was all entirely new to us. And what this was is a cable. Uh, a cable that was sent in 1997 from the uh, deputy director of operations at the CIA, the DDO. And this is the guy who's in charge of the clandestine services, the dirty tricks department at the CIA. And so this uh, memo or cable from the deputy director of operations at the CIA uh, is to it's to the FBI. And the subject of the cable is Roger Moore. And about two thirds of that document is entirely redacted. And 
when it's redacted, they have to list the reason for withholding it. And what's interesting is we looked up the reason for withholding it, the B1, which according to uh, the website says that um, uh, if something is redacted under B1, it means that uh, they are specifically authorized under criteria by an executive order to be kept secret in the interest of national defense or foreign policy. And so we have this memo where things are being classified or being withheld um, due to national security and due to, quote, intelligence sources and methods. And I think, of course, that the stuff in that cable was about Roger Moore being a CIA asset involved in CMA and involved in uh, funding and supporting the Contras. And so they had to, you know, classify that. And uh, so that was very curious. And that just came out of nowhere. Just they put it on their website, most of it redacted. No one had seen it. And it's highly curious. All right. Uh, I don't remember where you were at. We kind of lost our place a little bit. Maybe you recall. Uh, I'm looking at your notes and you've probably, I feel like you've probably still only covered a quarter of the uh, stuff about Roger Moore. So I don't know where you want to pick up. Uh, Cause yeah, there is so much here. Uh, it's it's so much that it, it's it's almost to the point where you can borderline with 100% certainty say this guy was a uh, glowy of some sort. He uh, whether whether he was a glowy or not, he glows like the sun. So, but <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah, and if you where you want to pick up, I kind of forget where you're at. We kind of went on a tangent there. Uh, yeah, no, no worries. So basically, what we've covered, we've covered uh, Roger Moore and his boat building business. We covered mm -hmm. how he was selling boats to Panama and to Vietnam. We've covered how he was connected to these Iran-Contra figures when he was in Florida running the boat businesses. Uh, we've covered how he was selling arms to CMA and to the anti-Castro Cuban exile groups. Um, and then we've covered the various uh, allegations that he was an Iran-Contra paymaster uh, or uh, an Iran-Contra, or that is someone arming arming people involved in Iran-Contra. And so then in addition to that, we've also covered how he was uh, an FBI informant and how he uh, um, said, he, you know, his cover was blown by the FBI. Um, about the only thing I haven't covered here is, is an example um, to show you the kind of pull that Roger Moore had is that when he found out that the FBI was showing his photo uh, to people in the Oklahoma City bombing investigation. They were FBI agents were showing a photo spread to witnesses, and Roger Moore found out his photo was in there and it upset him. So what did he do? He went into the nearest FBI field office, which it, he was in Las Vegas at the time. So he just strolls into the FBI field office and he just tells them, "Stop showing my picture." Okay, so. Uh, tell me this, if you're an average guy and you go into the FBI field office and you say that, uh, they're going to laugh at you. Well, what happened here, and I have the memo uh, concerning this, is that the FBI actually sent a memo to their case agents and told them, okay, stop showing his picture. So that's the kind of pull Roger Moore had. He could walk into the FBI and tell the big bad FBI what they can and can't do. And uh, they have to follow. They have to do it. Whereas anybody else did that and, and they would just laugh in your face, you know. And so he clearly has deep connections and, and great pull if he can do that. Another thing he uh, that happened with him is he told people on the case that he was a protected witness. 
Um, there was somebody who was being uh, who was arguing with Roger Moore. I don't remember who they were right now, but anyway, they they told Roger, "I hope you get indicted for this," you know. And he and he looked at in the 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 note about this said he looked at the guy kind of funny and said, "Well, I'm a, I'm a protected government witness. That's not going to happen." So he knew he was protected, and uh, you know. Um, I guess uh, the additional material on this I, that I actually had forgotten that I, I hadn't gone into is there 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 are a couple other things. Yeah. Um, that that's that. Um, uh, Terry Nichols was being interviewed by the FBI in 2005, and Nichols was telling the FBI that he had a whole bunch of explosives and material from the Oklahoma City bombing that he had buried under his former house in Harrington, and he did get the FBI to raid and recover that material. And what Terry Nichols told the FBI is that they would find, he told them firstly exactly what they would find and lo and behold, everything that he told them on that list was exactly what they found. They found uh, blasting caps, they found binary explosives, uh, they found uh, several different books regarding explosives. And he said that the FBI would find the fingerprints of Roger Moore on that material. And furthermore, uh, Terry Nichols said that Roger Moore was a co-conspirator in the bombing. You'd find his fingerprints on this bomb material. And uh, Nichols somewhat naively believed that the FBI would just, based on that, go out and arrest Roger Moore, uh, which of course, that, that's not what happened. Uh, but um, the FBI did recover this material. And probably about one to two years after the raid, they released a lab report that had uh, no significant information in it. It did not reveal anything of interest. Uh, however, uh, a gentleman named John Solomon, who was a reporter for the Associated Press, and he was their Washington bureau chief, uh, which that's a kind of a higher position in the AP. He was a uh, following this story at the time, 2005, 2006, and he had a source at the FBI, and his source told him there is a lot more to the Oklahoma City bombing than the official story. And that caused John Solomon to write six or seven really good articles about it. And one of the other things his FBI source told him was that fingerprints were found on the material recovered from Nichols' home. He said that the fingerprints of Roger Moore were found, the fingerprints of a man named Richard Lee Guthrie were found, and uh, Roger Charles, the investigator Roger Charles, he also said uh, that the FBI had recovered a hair sample of Richard Lee Guthrie from this bombing stash. And so here you have forensic evidence that links Roger Moore directly to some of the bomb making material. You have one of the co-conspirators who's been convicted for the bombing uh, pointing out Roger Moore and identifying him as a co-conspirator and nothing happened to him. You know, the news went to him and they interviewed him. And of course he denied, he denied all of it. And uh, not long thereafter, Roger Moore died of a heart attack, which he was very old, but, um, I just think it's unfortunate that more scrutiny was not put on him because I think we have enough evidence to show that he absolutely uh, was involved. Um, another thing is that um, 
the FBI recovered from Timothy McVeigh's mailbox a letter that Roger Moore had written to Timothy McVeigh. And this was a letter written in April of 1995. And that letter at the very top of the letter written in capital letters said burn. So he's telling, you know, McVeigh to burn this letter. And in the letter, Roger Moore writes, uh, one of the things he writes is uh, the objective is to bring the whole country down. He writes um, something about uh, his girlfriend, Karen Anderson, being risk averse and not wanting to get involved. Uh, the language that he's using makes it sound a lot like they're speaking in code to one another about something that they want to hide. And what was shocking to me is that the FBI asked him about the letter and they asked him, what did you mean when you said bring the whole country down? Or what did you mean when you said Karen doesn't want to get involved? And Roger Moore simply said he didn't remember. And to them, that was good enough. I think if Roger Moore were a normal person like you or me, and we were to tell the FBI, I don't remember, uh, they would find a way to motivate you to remember. Okay, they'd put you in, in prison. They'd put you in jail. They'd put the screws to you. Mm -hmm. And that's just another example of how he can just skate through life and not deal with any of the kind of consequences that regular people have to deal with. And think about this for a minute. If you said that you were going to sell somebody 100 pounds of C4 explosives, and that was reported to the ATF, and they had evidence that you had said this, or the recording of you saying this on video, and they're just then going to just, what, just drop those char drop charges, not investigate you? That doesn't make any sense. All of these times in which charges against him were completely dropped uh, or not pursued don't make sense. And what it looks like, obviously, he's he's a glowy, right? And a good example is Ray Epps, right? So you mm -hmm. have all the all these people at January 6th, and all they are is they're standing on the uh, on the Capitol. They're in jail right now. You know, they've they have arrested hundreds of people who are at the Capitol. But here we have Ray Epps on video actually telling people to storm the Capitol, telling them we need to go to the Capitol, telling them you need to go there, giving directions. He's on video. He's doing all this. And he, he wasn't even arrested. He was removed. The FBI has a list of photos of all the people Ray Epps was on there and they pulled his his photos. So how come, you know, hundreds of other people can be arrested for simply showing up, you know, but he's not arrested for instigating people. I think that looks a lot like Roger Moore not being arrested for offering to sell someone 100 pounds of C4, whereas if anyone else did it, they'd be put in jail. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. Uh, we're already at like an hour and 20. Uh, I, I do want to hit on one little thing because I don't think you're going to probably spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, I love, though, that we spent well over an hour talking about Roger Moore. Uh, which is in every, I, I, I'd be hard pressed to find anywhere else that even spent more than five minutes bre uh, breezing over Roger Moore. So uh, this is great that we've been able to go down this. We may even have to in the future. I don't know. Maybe if this, uh, if this, this uh, series blows up enough to where it merits it may have to, I mean, whether, I mean, obviously it's up to you send me notes or something that way uh, people can verify. Cause like I said, even looking at the Roger Moore notes you sent me, there's even more, I think, uh, just, mm. just breezing over it. So there's, there's so much that's like, we could have spent probably over two hours, if not more is covering the, the craziness of, of more. But 
I do want to touch on one thing, and I think this is a once again this will probably be another thing that kind of builds your reputation as someone who's not just uh, buying every little uh, supposed connection that would uh, you know confirm the uh, thesis that you know people presume to think we may want to have. Uh, let's touch on the Larry Potts thing since I don't think they'll touch a whole lot. Uh, you know, I know there were, uh, especially in the Corbett documentary, there was implied that there were, I believe, by one person or something. Uh, you'll know more than better than I will uh, the uh, the supposed Larry Potts connection. So I guess we can start with who he is and then uh, the supposed connection and your thoughts on it. Sure, sure. So Larry Potts was basically at the time of the bombing, he was the number two man at the FBI. He was the deputy director of the FBI, kind of the second in charge. And he was a big uh, honcho at Ruby Ridge and largely responsible for what happened at Ruby Ridge. He was what I would characterize as a, um, I would say, a, a very reckless um, deputy director. And so what we have here is that uh, Terry Nichols wrote in, an, and I believe it was an affidavit and a letter um, that when he was talking to McVeigh about the bombing prior to it happening, he said that McVeigh supposedly let slip the name of a, his control officer. And the theory being that McVeigh is some site, some type of agent, and uh, Nichols is saying that he let slip the guy's name. And what Nichols said is that McVeigh said the person who was directing him, essentially giving him orders, was Larry Potts. Now, here are my thoughts on that. The way things work at the FBI is if you are a field operator like uh, John Matthews, you're embedded undercover in a group or like the guys who were involved with the Wolverine Watchmen uh, with the Whitmer plot, um, they are not taking orders from the deputy director of the FBI. The deputy director is a guy who sits at a desk and reviews paperwork and has meetings. He doesn't talk to field agents. So the person who would be a control officer would be someone in the domestic terrorism operations unit. So I think what may have happened here well, there's about three possibilities. The first possibility, of course, is Nichols is just lying. He's just making this up because he hates the FBI. The second possibility is that Timothy McVeigh knows there's going to be an investigation after the bombing. He knows that Terry Nichols is going to be identified. And he knows, based on knowing his personality, that Nichols is probably going to talk a lot. And so he intention McVeigh intentionally says this in order to implicate a person whom McVeigh hates due to Ruby Ridge. He, he knows full well who Larry Potts is. I could see him saying that just for the explicit reason of knowing that down later down the line, Nichols is going to get interviewed and Nichols is going to say, you know what, McVeigh told me this. And just as kind of a big FU to the FBI. And so that, those are a couple of possibilities uh, that you see there. But I tend to think that uh, there's no way that that could be true just because a guy at Larry Potts's level uh, doesn't, uh, he's not the guy you have talking to your field agents or operatives. And he might be a guy who oversees these operations from a very high level, who reviews the after action reports and the results and all of that. But he's not the guy who, who you know, there's no way 
Larry Potts is calling McVeigh up and telling him this and to do this and to do that. So that's what I think about that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I find it a little a little ridiculous that someone at his level would do that. I mean, it could even be as deep as, you know, they pointed him out just to, I don't know, throw to to kind of for the more kookier conspiracy people to grab onto and to display exactly. the story as well. Yep. I mean, I don't know. You never know how deep it goes uh, to what level. Uh, it's hard to tell. It's also hard to tell to what extent did, did McVeigh really actually, um, was he an actual genuine person who was, upset about Waco uh, or was that some sort of plant to some extent? Who knows? Uh, I mean, these are things that we only have, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of piecing together things. So, I mean, that's the hard thing with this whole thing is it's kind of like we can provide sources, but I mean, com- coming up with exactly what happened is kind of hard, but we can kind of, uh, you know, at least point out where things are pretty fucky, uh, pretty, pretty weird at the very least. And, you know, provide sources for said weird things. Uh, but with that, we're I think we're at a good spot to stop. Uh, I don't think we really can d- dig into anything else without going crazy into time. Uh, but uh, I do think maybe next one we'll probably maybe start out with Nichols because I know it's a co-conspirator because he does seem to be a guy who comes up a lot. He sings mm-hmm. a lot. I'm kind of interested in you know what he's about. I have a feeling maybe he's not so much a glowy as the other people's maybe a glowy. Uh, you know, maybe he's just a guy that got, got mixed up, was kind of a useful idiot. That's exactly uh, it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I would like to maybe start out next time touching on him and then some of the other, cause there's still more Then we, we have at least another episode on just the characters. And then we're going to get into the juicy stuff after that. The, uh, the white paper associations, Yiki trying to do some other random weird deaths that occurred around it. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, I do want to, you know, bookend this with uh, once again, I, that, that intro I played at the beginning, that is actually what started me down this uh, path. Uh, I don't know why Yiki just tears at my heartstrings. Uh, he just seemed like a guy who's generally tried to do something right. And, uh, you know, fucking Jinx is the one who put me down that path, introduced me to his story, and uh, here we are. So I'm uh, appreciative to him. And, you know, I, I do want to honor the memory of Yiki because he seemed like a genuinely good guy who was trying to do the right thing and, you know, got fucked over for it. But uh, with that, uh, if you could go ahead and drop your plugs again, and uh, we'll go ahead and get out of here. Sure. One thing I want to say is that um, if anybody has any questions, for example, anything I say, if you want to know the source for it, you can find me on Twitter at um, it's booth under that's B-O-O-T-H underscore O-K-C. And just ask me. I'll be happy to post the source on there. I like the idea you talked about, about taking and making some show notes that have the sources in it because I have all of mine online. So I'm happy to provide any sources. So anybody, you can reach me on booth underscore OKC on Twitter. Um, You can find my writing in Garrison, the Journal of History and Deep Politics. I'll have an essay on the Oklahoma City bombing coming out in the next issue, which will be sometime after August. Uh, So check out Garrison. And you can also find on my Twitter profile a link to my Medium page where I publish my essays as well uh, for free for people to read on Medium. Yeah. And with that, if you're someone listening to the show, for one, uh, I guess two things. Uh, If you do have questions, feel free to ask in the live chat. Uh, I mean, I may not necessarily bring it up. It depends on the context, where we're at, uh, you know, how much time we have. I guarantee you, if you give me money, I'll bring it up because, I mean, that's, you know, you're paying me. But uh, even if it's a good enough question or if we have time at the end of the episode, I'll bring it up, uh, you know, in the live chat. Uh, the next live chat will be, let me see the date, uh, the, our next live stream will be the 19th. So if you show up for that one, uh, that's when it should be, barring any sort of, you know, changes in our schedules. But that's when the next one should be. We'll be going to more of the characters, probably starting with Nichols and some of the other ones. I feel like most of those guys aren't going to take up the type, type of time that Strassmeyer and more have. 
but I mean, it, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't care either way. I'm I want to go as deep into this as possible uh, without going too crazy and getting used to, into crazy conjecture. And if we do go into conjecture, I I, I, I trust that I have Booth here to slap it down uh, when we you know and provide you know reasons why that may be a little bit kooky. Uh, but the second thing is, if you are watching this and uh, you know, feel free to. Uh, if you see any other person, especially people with larger platforms uh, uh, that are like look to be interested in similar type things, for example, Wendigoon, a guy I think with almost a million more, I think just today I put I posted my uh, one of his things. He did a Waco thing and I posted something saying along the lines of like, hey, maybe you should consider, uh, you know, uh, getting Booth on or at least using him for a resource or something. So whether it's, you know, feel free to post my series so they can look into it and or Richard, one, one of two or, you know. Because I, I do think this is a uh, big good stuff, uh, and I, I I know I mean I have a, I have a decent sized platform, but I don't have as many as uh, as large a platform as some people do. So it'd be good to see this uh, you know go bigger. Because I haven't seen anything so far, and we we're like probably I, mean, I still think we're probably less than a half into all the stuff we're going to cover, and uh, I have not seen anywhere that has gone this sort of detail. And a lot of stuff we've been bringing up is stuff that I think is like you know, essential to it. I mean, I know we're going really deep. So like, you know, maybe somebody out there might only do an episode or two, so they won't cover everything we have, but there's everything I've seen so far is like a lot, a lot of stuff we've covered. They haven't covered that I feel like should be covered. Absolutely. Uh, so, so uh, you know, feel free to do that. Uh, share this far and wide, share Richard far and wide. Doesn't necessarily have to be my show. I mean, it doesn't have to be self-serving. I just want to get this going. So, uh, you know, move this story as much as possible. But with that, uh, this is the No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube, all the major auto podcatchers, Odyssey. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. I mean, I don't know. It seems to be every time I get to around 3,000, they get nuked again. So at Senor Jose 2020. But I mean, I'm pretty much always on Facebook. I mean, I'm pretty much, you know, I've never gotten my Facebook nuked. So, but I don't really do much on there. But you can contact me on there for sure. I'll definitely see it. So if you want to ever get in touch with me for whatever reason, you, you can definitely, especially if I get nuked off Twitter, you can hit me up on, uh, you can follow me on Facebook. I mostly only use that to drop promos for my show. But, you know, if you want to hit me up a messenger or, you know, uh, you know, hit, just hit me up in general on there. Uh, I have Jose Galley. So I almost have my, also have my page. They just made recently No Way Jose for the podcast. But also, if you want to support me, uh, help me, uh, you know, in this venture, patreon.com, Jose 2020 obviously appreciate any of that. There are differing perks. I mean, I can tell you those perks. If you hit me up, you want to know, or it's also laid out in the Patreon. Uh, but yeah, with that, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. I appreciate everyone who showed up and appreciate everyone who watches this. Uh, like I said, please try to share this around. And it doesn't even have to be this. Share, share Richard's name around. Uh, I think Richard has uh, really pieced together a lot of information that a lot of other people haven't, or at least haven't in a way that has you know garnered any sort of mainstream, uh, uh, maybe not even mainstream, but a uh, you know, sizable amount of uh, exposure. So I would like to see some of these, this stuff get more exposure. But uh, I appreciate your time, Richard. We'll do this again uh, Tuesday. Uh, barring any enforcing circumstances so uh yeah and i guess with that we are out appreciate it very good